things that I do when I go on holiday, uh, proper holiday, away, away, is I take my watch off and the phone gets kind of put onto airplane mode or left in a bag and I unplug. One of the things that I love about that is it causes one's brain, your thinking, to operate in a different time zone, holiday time zone, where you eat meals uh, when you're hungry or when the children have started moaning at you. You eat later into the evening and everything just moves, you hope, a little bit more slowly until you get towards the end of the holiday, usually about three days before the end, when I kind of think to myself, oh, but we're coming to the end and I love this, being away with family or friends or wherever it might be. Holiday represents an amazing sort of time. But we are living in another sort of time at the moment. A time where we have seen an unprecedented amount of change over the last uh, couple of hundred years with the Industrial Revolution and more recently with the Digital Revolution. In fact, there's been so much change that we are struggling to cope There's been increased uh, anxiety and depression, so much so, I don't know whether you've seen this little clip on the BBC website, uh, but there is a a new way of practicing mindfulness so that you can remove anxiety and depression from your life. And it is all about going back to being the hunter-gatherer and uh, having counselling in the woods and making fires and doing the kind of thing like taking your watch off. Why? Because, quite frankly, we we can't cope with all this pressure. But there's also a current struggle that is imminent in terms of the current set of upheavals which we face. And dare I say it, there are 88 days, 14 hours, 43 minutes and 28 seconds till Brexit... And the next section in my notes says, some of you may think that this is the best thing that could happen, while others of you will think that this is the worst thing that could happen. What I know is this, we live in uncertain times. And the landscape is shifting. In uncertain times, what we do is we reach out and we try and grab hold of something solid, something fixed that will provide us uh, with, with some certainty. We're looking for some ground to stand on. I don't know whether you've come across a very strange phenomenon uh, called soil liquefaction. When, uh, when the earth is moving in a particular way in terms of earthquakes and it hits a particular uh, set of soils or, or stones, then what can happen is, is the, 
the, the very particles, the, the way that those things are connected together become, rather than solid, become like a liquid, even though they are a solid. And you see strange photographs of kind of cars that have been half swallowed by solid ground. Sometimes this moment in history, in this particular bit of Europe, can feel like the ground is shaking and everything around us that we knew is moving. We've just finished a series and uh, in some senses today is just one more little footnote on the end of it about the great I am sayings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the vine. These are massive claims from Jesus. Claims that he is the one who provides. He is the one that brings direction. He is the one that brings protection. He is the one that cares for us and guides for us. He is the one that brings us life. He is the one that gives us access to the Father and the one who fills us with power, his very life, so that we can be fruitful. But more than that, there are these echoes of the Old Testament, of the great I am. God defining himself, Yahweh defining himself as I am who I am. And Jesus taking that for himself and saying, this is me. If you've seen the, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. We are one and the same. And so as we come to today's reading, it's like an addition to those I am sayings in John. I am the Alpha and the Omega, or the Omega, whichever way you want to say it the beginning and the end. But of course, this little phrase is in Revelation. And in Revelation, I'm not going to try and um, uh, pin it down today. I I did once teach it uh, to a group of folks that were on a discipleship year. uh, and, And it took me the best part of a day to try and explain it. So I'll save you that for now. But the key thing that you do need to know about Revelation is that in Revelation, time is not linear. It doesn't go from here to here. And if you try and read it like that, it, it, it just, it doesn't make much sense. But if you take away the, the, the frame of time being linear as you read Revelation, then there is a lot more freedom in terms of reading it, uh, as this amazing, rich, prophetic book. And I don't think we need to be too worried about the times and the dates. I think, in fact, Revelation is a little bit like holiday time. These things pop up in your imagination. You go, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, And then you're over here thinking about this. And and then you get towards the end of the holiday and you think, oh, the end is coming. Uh, It's going to be good, but, you know. A number of years ago... um, 
Meg and I had a holiday abroad, and uh, we decided that we would go to Patmos, which just so happens to be where Revelation was written. John was in exile. Now, we had a wonderful time in Patmos, and uh, if you ever get the chance to do this, by the way, uh, I highly recommend it. We, we originally hired a car, and um, we, we went in the summer, and it was quite warm, and um, we saw everyone else whizzing around on little scooters, and we thought, that's what we want to do. So we took the car back, and we hired a, a little moped, and uh, didn't have any helmets, uh, and whizzed around Patmos far too fast, clinging on to one another. Um, and it was absolutely great fun and possibly the most romantic thing we've ever done. Uh, that either means the threshold is very low or that the, or that the moped riding was very good. I'll leave that to you. However, one of the trips that we uh, took on the said moped was to go and visit the Cave of the Apocalypse. Now, if this cave had been in England, there would have been uh, an entrance booth with little brown signs from about 50 miles away directing you to said cave of the apocalypse. And when you got in, there would have been an apocalypse roller coaster and an apocalypse theme park and people dressed as the four horsemen of the apocalypse just to scare you as you were coming through and you'd be, be a gift shop. Greece doesn't quite work like that. So the cave of the apocalypse, firstly, it's quite difficult to find. Um, I mean, it is on the map, but there's one little sign off a rather dodgy bend. And when you get there, it's kind of up this dusty road. Well, everything's dusty in Greece with some trees. Uh, And then there's uh, a little kind of entrance place and... A chapel. And that's it. That's all there is there. At this amazing place where supposedly John has stayed while he's been in exile. And he has this amazing revelation from God. But actually none of that was what struck us. What struck us was as we stopped on our little moped on a wall to do the little, you know, the tourist bit and to take a picture of the view over the top of the cave towards the town was the staggering view that John may well have had. You see, the view is over this harbour, this busy harbour, this port of safety, this representation of all all that had been achieved in his day. But it's quite uniquely placed in that it sits in between uh, two small hills, And on one side there is the entrance to the harbour, so you have sea. And on the other side there is sea, and the land uh, bridge between the two is not very wide. 
And so in that place, we remembered these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. To be in that place and to think that in that place this is what John has heard and seen from God but this is the context in which he's seeing it. That the busyness of his modern world would be stripped away. The empire would be gone. The land and the sea would be completely made new. In fact, no more sea, completely gone, even though that's as far as his eyes would have been able to see. One of the things that's staggering is that so many of our pictures about heaven are off in the distance, up there, and somehow we've become disembodied in this endless worship and we're, I don't know what we're going to do, float around on clouds or something. You know, I don't know what picture you have in heaven. But the picture of heaven here is radically different. It is an earthed heaven. It is heaven come down and the earth made new. A new creation. Not earth disposed of. Not creation wasn't good enough. It was, this is good, but I'm going to make it right. Everything restored and made new as it should have been. And that this, this is a gift. A gift for Jesus the husband. And this place, this holy city, this is going to be the physical dwelling place for God. You know, as you read Scripture, one of the ways of, of looking at Scripture is, is by uh, seeing where God is dwelling in relation to earth and relation to people. So first of all, we see him make the heavens and the earth. And then he walks the, the earth with people. But then you see in, uh, in the Old Testament, there is this distance that happens between people. But where we get the temple in the Old Testament, there God's presence comes to rest. And then with the Holy Spirit, he's with us all the time. But here... Here we get the completion of that. Because he's not just here by his spirit. He's here in person again to dwell, to tabernacle, to live with. And in that place, in that place he's God. He's the ruler. His rightful place seated on the throne the beginning and the end
the Alpha and the Omega. You know, I don't know about you, but I do look forward to that place. I look forward to that place where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying because he has wiped our tears away, no more pain. It's able to be like that because of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's going to make a new order of things. And you and I will have new bodies and the bits of yours and mine that have got creaky over time will be made completely new. But you know, as we read Revelation, we can get distracted by so many things, even distracted by the thought of heaven. When the reality is this, all of this book is pointing to one thing. You see, all of this is about Jesus Christ, the beginning and the end, the one who provides water for the thirsty without cost, as an echo of Isaiah 55, that springs up from within, an echo of John chapter 4. And the stark reality at the end that there is a choice for each one of us. We can choose to spend eternity with Him or not. And it's not by our own effort. The victory is His. We can choose to keep our own human, man-made identities. The castles that we've built for ourselves. Or we can choose to be identified in Him. To surrender it all to allow him to be victorious, to allow him to be God. There's a future element to that. But there is also a present element. A present reality about the choice that we make each and every day. Where will you rest your feet in uncertain times? On what will you try and stand in times like this? You see, I don't know what the next 88 days, 14 hours is going to hold, aside from the politics. And neither do any of you. But folks, there is some solid ground on which we can rest our feet. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you that in you there is provision, direction, protection, care, life, access to the Father, and the power of your Holy Spirit flowing through us. Help us not to wait until eternity before we trust you with our lives, but to walk in step with you today, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.